<laughs> Tim asked me to just go with it and, and reveal the kingdom to us tonight. But I genuinely believe there is one, uh, one single issue that keeps us from the kingdom. That keeps us from encountering the kingdom. That keeps us from experiencing the kingdom. That keeps us from uh, moving in the kingdom and shaking our little environment wherever we are, Monday to Sunday morning, in the kingdom. And... Um, I just want to uh, ask you uh, a simple question. Um, by the way, I was really impressed with uh, David Carter using Monty Python the other week. And so I have paid homage to him tonight. Um, <clears throat> I want to ask you a question. This is really serious. Which territory on earth do you think is subject to the most consistently ferocious and ongoing spiritual warfare okay which territory on earth is subject to the most consistently ferocious and ongoing spiritual warfare some of you might say israel there's some pretty hot stuff going on out there at the moment some might say china with the marxist theology over there some might even say the middle east with the whole kind of Islamic extremism that's going on now. Some people might even say the lowlands of Europe, which are apparently some of the most spiritually barren nations on earth. Um, I want to read to you something from 2 Corinthians 10. Because the truth is, you know, us charismatics, we really, really, really like spiritual warfare. I mean, just that title gets us excited to spiritual warfare. And in 2 Corinthians 10, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Isn't that cool? Waging war. We get quite excited about that. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Like, we love that stuff. You know, we can build a prayer tower and get the flags out and go, woo-ha, we're going to go to warfare and we're going to deploy our weapons and we're going to pull down mighty strongholds. We love piling in and getting into this thing called spiritual warfare. But I wonder if we're playing on the right battlefield. Which territory on earth is subject to the most consistently ferocious and ongoing spiritual warfare. Well, personally, I believe the territory subject to the most consistently ferocious and ongoing spiritual warfare is right here. Between the ears. Seriously. By the way, if Phil's going to take a photo tonight, this is a really good photo to take. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. You know, the word tells us that um, the enemy's a liar. 
The enemy is a liar. And in John 8.44, the Apostle John kind of tells us quite clearly about that when he quotes Jesus. And Jesus said this, he said, He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with truth. Nothing to do with truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. You know, yes, Satan is a spiritual being. He's a powerful spiritual being, although he's a created being. So he is not equal to God. And we don't have to wring our hands for the rest of our time on planet Earth freaking out about how it's going to turn out. We have a big God and a little devil. But his greatest and most frequent mode of operation is planting lies here. But not only that, according to Jesus, he wants to father those lies. Let me explain this a moment. Um, I apologize if this sounds coarse, but any idiot can impregnate someone. All he needs is a basic understanding of how his zipper works. But it takes something much, much different to be a father. Because to be a father means to care, to give attention to, to focus on, to nurture, to provide and protect the thing that you've given life to. And that is exactly how the enemy works. He doesn't just like planting lies here between our ears. He wants to father those little babies. So he's not content to tell you you're useless, you're ugly, you're overweight, you're underweight, you're too tall, you'll never be used by God, etc. He wants to run that lie to full maturity. So you're ugly. Well, that turns into, well, no one will like you. And if no one likes you, what is the point of staying around? And if there's no point in staying around, actually, I might as well just end it. That is a fathered lie. That is precisely how he likes to work. He likes to take those lies that he plants in our heads and he loves to father them to maturity. And Bill Johnson says, you've heard this before, I'm sure, when we believe the lie, we empower the liar. We actually give him power. So in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, when Paul talks about the weapons of our warfare having divine power to demolish strongholds, what's the battlefield that he's picturing? It is it's this, it's, it's our mind. It's our thinking. And in that same passage, he takes us on a journey. Because he talks about divine power to demolish strongholds, but it's actually a little ascending ladder. And at the bottom of that ladder, the first rung is a thing called thoughts. He says, actually, take your thoughts captive. We'll come back to that. But our thoughts is where it all starts or finishes. That's where it all goes right or it all goes wrong. Thoughts pop into our head and we have a decision with what we're going to do with them. And we have to steward them well. And I'll tell you why. Because both heaven and hell are looking for our agreements. 
both heaven and hell are looking for our agreement. And the truth is, when we stand with God and we agree with heaven about who he says we are, what he's done in our lives, how he wants to use us, what he wants to do on the face of the earth, I'll tell you, planets change with those kind of thoughts. But if we buy into the thoughts of hell, which is, I'm just, excuse the Penelope Pitstop, little old me, I am nothing, I bring nothing, I can do nothing, planets remain the same. So our thinking is the battleground. So what happens? Bing, a thought pops into our head. And basically Paul says, you know, if we don't watch that thing, it becomes a pretension or a lofty opinion. Basically it means we take something that's a lie and we pretend as if it's the truth. And then it becomes a kind of opinion we have that no one can talk to us about. No one can change our thinking about. And the next step, he says, is really from there is it becomes an argument. And you see this with some of the militant atheists we have today who are in the TV and on YouTube and in the papers. You know, when they speak, there is just such ferocious anger and commitment to the arguments. They are sold out wholeheartedly to it. But there's a level above that where he says a stronghold. Or we might recognize the word a fortress. You know, I think of those uh, kind of, those settlers as they moved out sort of westwards in the United States at the end of the 19th century. Everywhere they went, they would build a little stockade and that would be a place of safety for them where they could then push out and take enemy territory, as it were from the Native American Indians. And that's exactly what the enemy does. He plants little lies, and if we buy into that thought and we don't steward it well, it becomes something that's a lie, that's pretended to be truth. It becomes an opinion. It becomes a strong argument. And then it literally becomes a little fortress from which the enemy launches attacks into our world, into our thinking, into into our lives. You know, I firmly um, believe that the greatest battleground for the coming revival, for the manifest explosion of the kingdom of God, for the revealing of sons, that actually all creation right now is saying, please, we want to see what a son of the kingdom looks like. The key battleground for that is our heads. And it's as simple as that. And if that's the case, we've got to make the shift from futile thinking to fertile thinking. Um, Some of you here are maybe old enough to remember the authorised version of the Bible. There's an old proverb in there and it says, as a man thinketh in his heart, So is he. And that kind of scares me, that proverb, because what it actually says is we have an immense power to create our own reality. You think about that. We have an immense power to create our own reality. We can either agree with hell 
about our reality, in which case it is going to be misery, sorrow, pain, lack, illness, poverty. Or we're going to agree with heaven and we're going to talk about identity and riches and power and strength and authority. And that's really important for us as we kind of take this little journey we've been on through Ephesians. Um, Chapter 4 of Ephesians, which is where we are now, is kind of the transition point of the letter. We've had three chapters of what I call stellar theology. Okay, That's not theology that Stella wrote, but as in theology that is just, boom, it's massive stuff. Think about chapter 1 and all we looked at there about this, this God in triune power and authority and ability and all the spiritual blessings that are ours because of him. And it just rumbles on through how we've received grace through faith that actually we were dead and drowned at the bottom of the sea. God didn't throw a rescue rope to someone who was alive. He pulled someone who was dead off the bottom of the sea and brought them back to life and brought them into his kingdom. And, you know, um, some of the prayers that roll out here, you know, that we could have strength to know the depth and height and length and just this immense God. And I refuse to believe that that is about cognitive knowledge. It is about a deep inner witness and experience, something tangible that happens when we encounter the God of the Bible. You know, this thing is just the menu. He's actually the meal. And there's too many, no, seriously, there's too many Christians who go to the restaurant and they get handed the menu and they start nibbling on it. Instead of saying, do you know what? Well, I'll start with the antipasto. And then we're going to have the quattro fromage. And then, and then, oh, and don't forget the cheese platter. And the, do you know what I'm saying? Why nibble on a piece of cardboard when you can have the meal? And so there's these three chapters of stellar theology that tell us how huge and amazing God is and what he's done for us and what he's actually unlocked for us. And then Ephesians 4.1, Pete spoke on this this morning, signals a change of gear. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And I love that insight, Pete, this morning about this isn't like drawing a bar and saying, I hope I might ascend and reach the level that means I am now worthy of the calling. It's actually about step into everything that God has called you for. Step into everything that he's spoken over you by calling you a son and a daughter. Step into everything that he's got for you when he says, here is my power and authority. Step into everything that he has given you. But the truth is, there's something that sits in this verse and it's about walking out what you've been called to. And we have to be really careful as we move forward through the rest of the book because we could just read it like a list of do's and don'ts. 
We could read it like a load of rules and regulations. We could read it like law and works. And I want to say this right now. We were saved by grace and nothing else. And the truth is as well, we are kept by grace. We're not saved by grace and then kept by our works. And yet I know so many people who've got saved by the wonderful grace of Jesus. And then from that point onwards, try and do it in their own strength, in their own righteousness, rather than everything he's given them. You know, an apple tree does not produce apples as works to placate or satisfy the gardener. An apple tree produces apples because they are the fruit of what it actually is. An apple tree. So when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you received, he's not trying to get us to earn something. He's actually saying, you're the apple tree. Let there be fruit. And the truth is, if you've got religious thinking anywhere swilling around in your brain then you probably believe that works make righteousness happen. But actually, if we truly are children of grace, then we know that works are evidence that righteousness has happened. It's a big difference. It might look the same on the outside, but the inner experience of the person going through it is going to be very different. Because the person trying to earn it is in slavery and will never reach the mark. But the person who's just exhibiting what they already are is a blessed person. So I want to say tonight, if anything I say feels like rules and regulations, that's not what I'm trying to get across at all. Because we've been set free for that. I've been set free for that. And I never, ever, ever want to go back there. It, it, it kills you. And it cripples you. But just in case it does sound like that, I want you to remember this simple thing. Precept, principle, person. Behind every precept in the Bible is a principle. And behind every principle is the person of Jesus. So, for example, when you get that quirky thing in the Old Testament where um, we're told not to boil a goat in its mother's milk... So if Jamie Oliver wrote a new book and said, yeah, I've got this great new recipe and you need a small baby goat and you need its mother's milk and you pop one in the other, boil it for 20 minutes, job's a good one. Could we do that? Well, it's simply understanding what's going on. Behind the precept is a principle, the occult practices of the Canaanites involved boiling goats in their mother's milk. What's the principle? Don't mess with the occult. Why? What's the person behind the principle? It's Jesus himself. There is only one God. There is only one God. So please forgive me if anything I say say tonight feels like rules and regs. That's not where I'm trying to go. We have to understand something that um, you've got to walk it out. You've got to walk out who you are. You don't walk something out to try and become something. You just walk out who you actually are. And the point that Paul starts with is this thing about futile thinking. Verse 17 um, in in Ephesians chapter 4. Now now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. When I read that, that, that put my head in a bit of a spin. Because 
If you read that, I say this and testify, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's actually writing to Christians. So what Paul is saying here is, he thinks believers can behave like the unsaved. Shock horror. When he says Gentiles, Gentiles, he's talking about people who are pagan, who are polytheistic. Um, They worshipped all kinds of weird and strange deities. And he's saying, make sure you don't think like that. Not only does he think believers can behave and think like that, he actually knows they do. Because he says, you must no longer walk. He's actually telling them, I know you are walking like Gentiles and you mustn't do it anymore. I want to read verses 18 through 19. He says, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Have you ever wondered how some believers can live the kind of car wreck life they do? It's because actually they haven't changed the way they think. You you normally see it on the front page of one of the red top tabloids. You know, Vicar runs off with organist or whatever. And you think, how could you end up there? Well, actually, the thinking didn't change. You know the difference between an organist and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. Anybody from a traditional background will really understand that one. But here's the thing. He runs a little system of how they're thinking. He says, these Gentiles, they are hardened in their hearts. And that, in turn, leads to ignorance, which then, in turn, leads to them being alienated from the life of God. They become darkened in their understanding. They become calloused. That means they have a lack of feeling. And therefore, they give themselves over to sensual pleasures. And, in fact, they become greedy to practice that kind of impurity and at the root of how they think and everything that falls out of that is this simple thing their hearts are hardened I was thinking about that and I got thinking about arteries and and the hardening of the arteries and it's it's something that happens to a lot of people as they get older and I was was thinking about that and I was thinking, you know, that's not something that happens overnight. It's not like somebody gets up one morning and decides to be hard to God. In the same way, you don't harden your arteries overnight. You know, like if, if you're like 16 and you have a bacon sandwich, you probably haven't done irreparable damage to your life. But if like me, you've built a lifestyle of savoring one of the finest foods ever produced, the bacon sarni. It is that consistent and repetitive lifestyle of that which actually builds up the hardness, isn't it? And it's the same with God. When Paul says, don't be like the Gentiles in how they think, he said, that the first place to protect yourself is in the heart and don't let it get hardened. And by the way, it's not something you will spot. 
Because it's incremental, step by step, little bit by little bit. The result of that is they get alienated from the life of God. And I just had this question go through my head. What flows from God's life into ours? Because if you get alienated from that, that is like unbearable. Peace, joy, righteousness, identity, destiny, provision, protection, the future. I mean... I mean, I stopped counting when I got to about there because I thought I could just go on for weeks, actually. When we harden our hearts, we get alienated from the life that flows from God. And then he talks about them eventually becoming calloused. That means they have a dull, dulled perception. Calluses can be good or bad. If you're a guitarist, calluses are a really, really good thing. Particularly in this church where the worship can go on for a long, (laughs) long time. And I think we should just give a big round of applause for all of our worship teams right now because... Whilst we're having a jolly in worship... They have an experience of pain and torture, (laughs) which sometimes takes days to end. The famous Beatles track, Helter Skelter, which has got one of the most kind of heavy, grungy riffs ever. As the record fades out, you can hear John Lennon scream in the background, Ah, my fingers are bleeding! Sometimes calluses are good. But when they're on your heart, they're not. And it all starts by incrementally little things that slide us away from God and alienate us from his life. Well, Paul has some really, really, really great news for us, which is there's a switch that's available. It's like... The key from moving from futile to fertile thinking is understanding who you now are. That's where everything changes. Verse 23 to 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is where everything changes, folks. And in case you want to um, misinterpret this, I want to be clear. Paul is not advocating spiritual schizophrenia here he's not saying when you get up in the morning and you dangle your legs over the side of the bed you don't sit there deciding which man you're going to put on am i going to put on the man i used to be or am i going to put on the man i am now that's not what he's talking about here and at the risk of sounding a bit technical he says you were taught 
to put off your old self. This is something that's happened in the past. Not only that, when it talks about to put off your old self and to put on your new self, the way the Greek's written there, it's a once and only once event that has happened and is now completed. So this isn't you get up in the morning and you decide now... Okay, Mark, pre-22 years old. Shall I be him today? Or shall we Mark post-22 years old? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying remember what you were taught and you did. There's a point in time when you came to Christ and you said, that person, whoever I, whoever I was, boom, they're gone. They're in the wash and they're going to get lost in the wash. Never, it's like that elusive sock that we all have in the air and clubbed. There is another sock that matches it somewhere. I've looked everywhere in my wardrobe, the drawers, the back of the washing machine. I cannot find it. It is gone forever. That's what's happened to the person you used to be. And there's a new person. Shiny and sparkly. With a suit of armor and a vicious looking sword. Fueled with fire, with a scroll in their hand, which is a mandate to take planet Earth for Jesus. That is who we now are. Created after the likeness and true righteousness and holiness of Jesus. That's who you are. And we work from that, not to that. Some people are trying to work to righteousness and holiness. No, you already are righteous and holy. You can work from it. You say, this is who I am. I'm fully tooled up for the kingdom. Let's rock and roll. I love Ray Winston, <clears throat> East End boy. Normally is in gangster programs and stuff. And there's this just one program, I can't even remember what it was, where as he's walking out the door, he says, uh, we better get a little bit, Better get tooled up because it might get a little bit naughty. <laughs> I just think it's the best line in a TV show ever. The truth is you are tooled up and it will get a bit naughty because we have an enemy. But the tools we have are more than capable of demolishing his strongholds. So that kind of brings us really to where we, we want to kind of land, which is fertile thinking. See, futile thinking is exactly what it says. It's the kind of thinking that frustrates and goes round in a circle and never gets anywhere productive. And actually, we can let go of that. Paul says, don't live like that anymore. You can live a different kind of thinking life, and it's a fertile life. It's a life full of growth and potential. In understanding that belief shapes our behavior, what can we do to nurture fertile thinking? In verse 20, 21. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I think first step on that journey is really simple. Be teachable. Be teachable. You know, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind means letting God's truth permeate 
and reshape how we think. I remember years ago in the church I was in, and and I know this is going to sound like the Middle Ages here, okay? So we had somebody who was a lady who was nominated to be a deacon. Well, you would have thought World War III had been declared. And the problem we had was one of the deacons who served on the current team refused to back this nomination, which in a Baptist church is a really big deal because a lot of politics. And and I had the job as assistant pastor to go and visit this couple who were not going to back this nomination. And I went through the Greek with them. I explained to them that scripture clearly says it's okay. And... I just asked them, why can't you change your mind on this? And they said, well, when we first got saved, we were taught the women can't be in leadership. That was 30 years ago. And I realized that there's some folk who believe they've walked as a Christian for 30 years. When in fact, all they've done is walk as a Christian for one year and repeated the experience 30 times. Because we can go round in circles on the same little bit of pet theology or whatever it is, our favorite ministry or whatever it is, our favorite thing to debate about or whatever it is, and never move on, never grow, never broaden. I just love what Bill Johnson says. You know, here's the truth. He will never contradict his word, but he may well contradict your understanding of it. I have grown to live with elastic theology because God has broken my head so many times when I thought I had it all sussed out and he drops something new into the equation and I'm like, no, that doesn't fit. I mean, what do I do? I've spent years constructing this beautiful framework of theology and you throw that in and it just wrecks it all. But actually the heart is to have a flexible framework. Every time we discover something new is to bring it into frame and go, well, how does that then shape everything I thought I used to believe? It's It's a heart that says I'm malleable in God's hands. Corinthians 10 where where I started this evening Paul says take every thought captive to Christ I love that it's just like this picture of you know there you are I know reading the times or whatever you do on a Sunday morning at home this thought comes into your head and the picture you have is like oh got it Right, I'm going to drag this thing before the throne of Christ. I'm going to stand it there. I'm going to say, does it look like Jesus? Does it smell like Jesus? Does it sound like Jesus? Does it taste like Jesus? Is it going to make me more like Jesus? No? Poom, you're gone. That's what we need to do. That's the heart of, of fertile thinking. He goes on in verse 24, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. Put away falsehood. Be real. That's a really good solution if you want to have fertile thinking. 
You know, um, there's two realms we can live in. The realm of facts and the realm of truth. Do you know that? Okay. So some people live in the world of facts alone. So when they give their testimony, it sounds like a country and western song. The dog died, the wife left me, my cash is gone, I've been kicked out of my job, the fridge is empty. <sighs> Sorry, that, there was a testimony in there somewhere? Yeah, yeah, everything's really bad. Great. And the testimony bit is, I just wanted to share how miserable I am. But that's not being real. Because being real is we have hope and we have faith. Faith is the anticipation of what we do not yet see but we know is real. Hope is knowing that there is a God who works all things, even the fridge being empty, to the good of those who love him. But it works on the other hand as well. There's some people who live so much in the truth that they try and deny the facts. Nah, I haven't got asthma. No, no, you have. Look, look, here's your peak flow. You have asthma. No, 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 I don't have asthma. I don't have cancer. I don't have a broken leg. No, look, here's the x-ray. And the problem is, faith does not deny problems. It just denies problems a place of influence. Guys, we need to be real. We need to um, manage our emotions. You know, it says be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Well, I've worked that out, which probably means you have about 23 hours and 59 minutes. That's it. That's about as long as you can hold a grudge. (laughs) Unless you live in Norway, in which case you can hold a grudge for a good three months now. (laughs) See, we could get caught up in the whole anger thing, but actually I think what Paul is saying is manage your emotions. Like emotions are real, they're a part of who God has made you to be. But if your emotions run you, you're going to have futile thinking. Instead, you run your emotions. And that's the truth. We're, we're, we're a component being. We're made up of parts. We have a body. We have a soul. We have a spirit. And it's our spirit that is born again and alive to Christ. It's our spirit where the Holy Spirit dwells. And it's our spirit who should be on the throne of our life. It's the spirit who should be dictating how we think, how we feel, what we're doing. Not our emotions. Yes, our emotions are real, but we should bring them under the part of us that is perfectly aligned with Jesus. Let the spirit man in you rise up. Let him sit on the throne and say, this is what we're going to do. Why don't we build? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let's build. Why don't we leave every person we meet feeling that we were there to grow them, not they were there to grow us? Does that make sense? Because sometimes we can be, and I'm aware of this, I can so get carried away with this myself, jump into a situation, hi, I'm here to tell you all about my favorite person, 
me. And we tell them everything that's going on in our life and what God's doing in our world. And, da, 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 da. and that's really good. But actually, how about asking some questions? How are you? What's God doing in your world? What can I be praying for? Can I help with that? That is fertile thinking. Our, our job as community is to build the body together collectively. And finally, this one. And I think this is the key to all the others. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's treasure, protect, and steward the presence of God. It's God's Holy Spirit who teaches us. He's actually the teacher. In fact, he wrote the textbook as well, which is kind of good. So he's the best person to explain it to us. He is the spirit of truth. So he's the one who actually helps us be real. He's the one who can help us manage our emotions because he was the one actively knitting us together in our mother's womb. He's the one who can help us build up. We were talking just a week or two ago about the unity of the spirit. There's something that he loves to do in and through all of us. Let's treasure his presence. You know, as a deposit, because that's what we're told he is, a deposit of what's to come, He's our only knowledge of what eternity is going to be like. You ever thought about that? That's why some less red-hot Christians, those who are a bit cooler in their faith, maybe have hard in their hearts, struggle to get excited about eternity. Because they're not having that same encounter with him, the one who is the deposit, showing us what the real, full-blown manifestation of this thing is going to be like. We can't afford to lose sight of that. He's the seal. I was at this birthday party this afternoon where we ate more Mexican than is good for a human being too. Um, but the guy whose birthday was was 21 and his dad had done something really sweet for him. He'd bought him a gold signet seal ring. You know the kind that you press into hot wax? And in the ancient world, a seal was something that you pressed into clay to show ownership. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We belong to him. So, you know, the kind of place I want to land tonight is just by thinking about that. Do we treasure and steward the presence of God well? I don't mean that as an accusation. It's just seriously an open question. And I'll tell you why I say it. We have such a privilege in this church because of the culture that has been built. It's like really, really easy to encounter God here in a way that other people might literally labor for hours to do before they enter into that place. We can walk in and it's just like, boom. And for that reason alone, it's really easy to take him for granted. We can take him for granted. Because this is our normal, and normal just becomes normal, not 
exciting. Does, does that make sense? And as a relative newcomer to the church, that's one of the things I've brought with me is I'm still blown away every time we get together to worship or whatever it is, or any kind of gathering. It's like, wow, this is what I just have wanted my whole Christian life. A tangible reality of the presence of God amongst us, just like this. And I know there's more, but this is what people out there are literally dying for. And yet for us, because it's our normal, it can become, oh, that's just normal. And we can forget it, and we can then maybe not treasure it and steward it. So I want to give that word as an encouragement. You know, there's this quirky old story in the Old Testament about a baby who's born called Ichabod. And basically the scenario is this. Israel is fighting the Philistines at this time. And in this battle, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. And this messenger is sent to Eli, who's the uh, Israel's prophet. And basically this, this messenger's got a really bad list of stuff. Um, number one, uh, we lost the battle. Number two, the Philistines won the battle. Uh, number three, uh, both your sons died in the battle. Uh, number four, the Ark of the Covenant got stolen, at which point Eli falls off his chair in shock and dies because the Ark of the Covenant represented the very geographical, tangible, manifest presence of God amongst the people of Israel. And when the Ark goes, God has gone. And I'm always reminded of that story. Are we, are we, would we be that upset if we had a day without the presence of God? Would we like fall off our chair in shock and go, oh, I had a whole day where I didn't. Oh. Seriously, he is so good. He is so good. He's so amazing. Let's treasure him. Let's steward him. He is the key, I really believe, to fertile thinking. He unlocks all of that stuff. So it's not a list of rules and regs and do's and don'ts, but just a whole bunch of, I get to do this. I get to be taught and grow. I get to live in real truth and be real about who I am and what's going on. I get to build other people up. Do you get the picture? So I just wonder if um, we could take just a little bit of time at the end here and let's just treasure him. Let's like really love on him like we always love him loving on us. So let, let's all stand. And if your fingers are up to it, Ali. <laughs> You've got calluses in all the right places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Father, we just say you are so good. You are so good. You are so good. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. The great sacrifice who paid the way. But thank you for those words that he gave us, Lord, that, that it's good that he goes that the Holy Spirit might come. We just want to thank you for that. Lord, that, that even Jesus himself said that. That he said, I'm good, but there's something even better. It's good that I go, that he might come because he's me, but he's me everywhere and with everyone all the time. 
Maybe you could just lift your arms and start to just adore and treasure him. Jesus, we just, we just treasure your presence in this place. Father, I pray you'd give us the wisdom to steward your presence well. Lord, just come and ravish our hearts with your love. Ravish our hearts. (laughs) I just really believe that, that God's saying that what we experienced earlier before the message was just the starter. There's more on the menu tonight. There's more on the menu. And in his restaurant, we're not limited by how much money we've got in our bank account, how many good things we've done or anything like that. We can choose anything from the menu, no matter how expensive, because he's actually paying the bill. just encourage you look at that menu look what he says is available and press in for it